previously in Acts, a supernatural mission. Acts 21. Paul arrives in Jerusalem, a city he's felt compelled to visit for some time. Upon his arrival, Paul reports to James and the elders what God had done among the Gentiles, the non-Jews, through his ministry. When Paul arrived at the temple, Jews from Asia stirred up the crowd in the temple. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. All the city is stirred and Paul is dragged out of the temple to be killed. Word came to the Roman tribune, the Roman commander of a thousand men, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And the tribune has Paul arrested and carried to safety for further questioning. When it was decided that he would be flogged for the incident, Paul asks, is it right to flog a Roman citizen? And he declares to be both a Roman citizen and a Jew. The tribune decides to take Paul before the chief priests and the council to answer how a Roman citizen and a Jew could be accused by fellow Jews. Acts 23. Paul is before the chief priests and the council, making his defense. In his final statement, he declares, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. In the crowd were two religious groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who had differing views about the resurrection. By this, the assembly is divided, and great clamor arose and became very violent. The Roman tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn into shreds, had Paul taken away to the barracks. A plot arose among the Jews, vowing to not eat any food until Paul is killed. Word of this plot reaches the Roman tribune, and he sends Paul to Felix the governor in Caesarea, escorted by 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Finally, Paul is to be given a hearing before Felix and before his accusers. What will happen next? It's a little bit of a, of, of a catch-up. It's one of those, we haven't been in Acts for a little while. And we can see from the events of Paul's life that Paul's time in Jerusalem is, not, is nothing short of eventful. I'm sure if he was sending a postcard to the rest of the other apostles, he'd probably be saying, having a great time, wish you were here. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting, in previous uh, chapters, we talked about God's guidance and how God uh, encouraged Paul that he felt compelled to go. His friends were, were kind of apprehensive about it, but then were, were, were supportive of it. And then also it was confirmed by even prophetic words. And, and I think it's good to note at this moment is that God's guidance doesn't always equate to peace and comfort. That this can, this, we could say, you know, this can't be God's will. Something is wrong. Paul could be probably sitting there going, man, what's going on? This, I thought I was supposed to, this was supposed to be God's will. But it's because he knew God had called him to that, that he was able to stand in all those situations. But we're going to pick it up in, Act, in Acts 24. If you want to turn there, uh, 
as, as our introduction stated, that we're now at a place, this is sort of mid-course, which is why we needed to have the introduction, is that Paul is given a hearing with his accusers before Governor Felix. So in Acts 24, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. So we're here in a little bit of a courtroom. Actually, what you find, it says there in verse 1, that, that finally his accusers arrive, that, that, that the stage is set, that there's a high priest, Ananias, and there's some elders, and there's a spokesman called Tertullus. Now, that spokesman, you're going to hear, probably sounds more like a solicitor. So these are Paul's accusers. And they laid before the governor their, cho- their case against Paul. And when he, Felix, had, summon- had been summoned, uh, Tertullus began, uh, pardon me, and when he had been summon- summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, Paul, saying this, Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace. Actually, there's a lot of discontent, rumbling, ready to burst at any excuse. And since by your foresight, actually very little wisdom that this guy had. Most excellent, Felix, reforms are being made. Not much reform has happened during that time. For this nation, you get the picture of what's going on. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg, I, I, I beg you in your kindness, he's not known for that, to hear us briefly. So you get the picture. At best, this spokesman for the accuser is stretching the truth and he's bringing great flattery to Felix. In verse 5, For we have found this man a plague who has stirred up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader for the sect of the Nazarenes. That's just another name of those that were followers of Jesus of Nazareth. You also hear in the story, he talks about those that are in the way, which is, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These are all just synonymous names for Christians or followers of Christ at that time. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Uh, He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, if you have your Bible there, you might notice that there isn't a verse 7 listed there. It actually is in the footnotes. And that just has to do with the different translations. So I'm going to read the things in brackets up here are, are from the footnotes. But that's some interesting things. So it goes on, he says, But we seized him and would have judged him according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything that we've accused him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had notioned for him to speak, Paul now makes his reply. We now hear from the defense. Knowing that for many years you've been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You will verify that that it is no more than 12 days since I, I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing against me. While we may not be able to relate to the details of Paul's circumstances, no one's received any death threats because of the resurrection here this morning. No one's caused a riot on the way here, maybe in your car or something, but... You didn't, you didn't need a military escort here this morning 
because you've turned the town upside down, unless something with the town pastors happened. But, but while, while we may not relate fully to those circumstances that he was in, what is clear from this story is that Paul had accusers who were persistently accusing him for things he didn't do, things they, that they were actually doing, and for the things he stood for. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate a little bit more to that. Accusations, allegations, claims, blame, criticisms, opposition, and hostility. An accusation is a charge or claim you've done something wrong, whether they are true or not. When I was going to university... I was, I was taking an acting class, and one of our assignments was that we had to do, we had, we had to do a play. And, and this particular play that I was asked to do um, with, with another, another person, the content and the language, I just wasn't comfortable doing in, my, in all good conscience. So I said to the, to, the, to the professor, I said, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And he got a bit upset, and so he, he said, you know, I'll find something, something else for you to do, and so forth. And so it was, it was a lot of pressure. And actually, one of those nights, I had a dream. And in that dream, the professor was giving me a set of keys. He said, these are the keys to the religious science department. Go there. You don't belong here. And so for taking a stand, I came under criticism in that situation. Ruth and I have been having a number of conversations lately because she's had such a persistent battle in her mind of various arguments and reasons that all the conclusions seem to come to that she should just leave her current position at the college. Go somewhere else. Just being herself, though, Ruth has made such a huge impact in the lives of those that she's been working with, just even being there. But she's constantly been battling with thoughts that she doesn't belong there and she's not doing enough. Now, there are times like Paul when we need to walk through claims that others make against us. But most accusations don't come from anyone else. We end up carrying around condemning, accusing thoughts. Look what you've done. Look what you haven't done. Look what you should have done. How could you possibly think of doing that? Our mind storms when we're under pressure, either maybe financial pressure or work pressure. When you're simply trying to make steps forward, it seems as though that that accusations affront us all the time. How stupid can I be? The enemy just loves to drop these thoughts into our minds, particularly when, we want, when, we, when he knows we're listening. Accusations kill our confidence. They stand opposed to you. They meet you when you want to step out for God to lift up your hands or when you want to pray. They're like kryptonite when you're trying to be Superman and Superwoman. John was driving home late one night when he picked up a hitchhiker. As they rode along, he began to become suspicious of the passenger. John checked to see if his wallet was safe in the pocket of his coat that was on the seat between them, but it wasn't there. So he slammed on the brakes, ordered the hitchhiker out, and said, hand over the wallet immediately. The frightened hitchhiker handed over a billfold, and John drove off. When he arrived home, he started to tell his wife about the experience. But she interrupted him saying, Before I forget, John, did you know that you left your wallet at home this morning? You can be accused of things that you didn't do. 
There are things that you can't go back in the past and fix. If only I had done things differently. Paul probably would have loved to have had Acts 8 back to do over again. We read some of Paul's account in his own words later on in Acts 22. This is when he's persecuting those who are followers. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, had been shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. As parents, we all can have regrets with our kids. I believe there were some important years when I wasn't the father my kids needed them, me to be. I remember my mom, who was such a sacrificial, hardworking single mom, that every time she talks about her role as a parent with us three boys, that tears would well up in her eyes, that she didn't do enough, and that she could have done better. But you know, here in this message, we see very clearly that Paul faced a whole variety of accusations from a whole crowd of accusers. We read, first of all, that Paul's accusers put labels on him. He's a plague. He's a troublemaker. He's just trouble. He's a pest. Accusations are not just what he did, but actually challenged who he was, which challenges our identity. You're weak. You're fake. You're unlovable. You're stupid. You're a failure. You're unforgivable. Secondly, Paul's accusers tried to stir things up, tried to rob Paul of his peace, stirred up conversations with people against him, accusing him the very things that they were doing. Paul's accusers kept bringing things up. It's interesting. I love verse 8. It says, actually, you can ask him, and he'll tell you all the things we have accused him of. They said, Paul can tell you what we are accusing him of. We never need to be reminded of accusations. But we constantly are. Also, Paul's accusers kept trying to tear him up. They tried to destroy him. They just wanted him gone. And so, we look at that problem. We go, man, what would possibly be Paul's defense? Paul here in this story, we can see, was accused and opposed because he followed Christ. He was accused for what he stood for and professed more than something of his personal character. Nonetheless, he faced unclaimed, unfounded claims. And it says something interesting in verse 10. He says, I cheerfully make my defense. What kind of defense would you possibly be cheerful about? If you actually read back through the summary of verse 11, he says, it's not been more than 12 days since this whole thing started. I can't possibly have enough time to do all the things you're accusing me of doing. I wasn't stirring up the crowd anymore. I wasn't stirring up the crowd anywhere. They were doing that, and they have no proof that what they're bringing against me. That's not much of a cheerful, a cheerful defense. No, I didn't. There isn't much of a cheerful defense when you're accused to simply say, no, that's not true. That isn't right. You are. I'm not. You are. I'm not. Cheerful, huh? 
But how could Paul possibly have a cheerful defense in this situation? It looks more like a stalemate. It's one of those, their word against his. But what I want us to see this morning is that Paul goes on and gives three reasons why he had a cheerful defense. If we read on, we read verse 13 that says, Neither can they prove to you what has been, what they're bringing up against me. Verse 14, but this I confess to you. So all those things, he said, now before I continue on, I want to say, but this I confess to you. That according to the way, in other words, but being a follower of Jesus which they call a sect, they call a cult, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the laws and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which, though these, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. But I also take pain to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. He says, I worship God. I have a hope in God and I have a clear conscience. So he's saying, before I go any further with the details of this story and giving my account, I want to first of all give my true defense. Worship, hope, and a clear conscience. Then he goes on and tells, now in verse 17, now after several years I came and he goes on to tell the story from his side. So I want to look briefly at these. What do these areas look like? What do these, these things he's talking about look like? And what does that mean for us today? First of all, worship. He says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets. The meaning of this word worship in this verse brings two words together, ministering and serving. Worship and serving. It speaks of ministering not requiring much skill. Worship doesn't require much skill or status. You know, you don't need a degree. There's no NVQ 1, 2, and 3 in worshiping God. In Downton Abbey, both the upstairs and the downstairs could both worship. It's not a status thing or not any type of qualifications. But the Bible says things like this. I thank God whom I serve. Worship and serving. With a clear conscience, it says in 2 Timothy. The God of whom I belong and whom I worship, serving and worship. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him, worship, without fear. Worship speaks of whether the place of God in our heart is occupied by God or other things. And that's even just another reminder of of the things we challenged ourselves with the idol series recently. In 1979, Bob Dylan wrote a song that says, you're going to have to serve somebody. You've got to have to serve somebody. Well, it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, hang on, Mike. I understand the serving God, but serving the devil? I, I don't serve the devil. I, if anything, I serve myself. Maybe you're here and you go, I, I'm maybe not serving God, but I'm not serving the devil. I'm if anything, just, just myself. But the devil loves to help us with that and take no credit. 
If you even consider, even at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis tells a story of, of devil, that Satan that comes as a snake, and he says, you can be like God. Did God really say? In the American Civil War, there was a, a fighting between two parts of the, of the American nation. The Confederates were in the South, and they wore gray uniforms. The Union soldiers were in the North, and they wore blue. And one man decided he was going to remain neutral, so he wore gray jacket and blue trousers, and both sides shot at him. There is no neutral position in who we serve. You see, my point in this, in this area is that accusation puts focus on yourself. You're such. You did. I'm always. But worship puts our focus on someone greater than ourselves. Um, last year, I, I had a, a trip. I was doing some ministry in Holland um, with some of the relational mission things that we're doing. And it was, it was a, a weekend that I was asked to come and do some prophetic ministry. And, and when I arrived there, it was one of my first times in Holland doing that. And when I was sitting there in worship, I had this incredible fear that just came upon me. Anxiety, just like panic. I'm just like, I can't do this. I, I, I don't, what am I doing here? I'm in Holland. I should be home. And just this huge panic. Everything just was me where I was battling. And I just felt like God says, you know, I can use you no matter how you feel. Just fix your eyes on me. And all of a sudden, I just lifted my hands. And I said, God, I just fixed my eyes on you. And I just felt just a peace come upon me. You see, because at that moment, my accuser was trying to put my attention on me and what I'm not. But worship puts my eyes on him and who he is. And so that's why Paul can say, my defense is I worship God. Worship reminds us that God is near. Here's a great fridge magnet for you. Are you ready? Isaiah 50 verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? That's a good one for your fridge or your, or your mirror. Isaiah 50 verse 8. You know that dread when you're a kid and you're trying to avoid the bully in the schoolyard and you know that as soon as you get caught, you're going to get whooped and you're going to get hung or, or hung up by your underwear on, on the pole? I mean, didn't have that problem. But, but when you have your big older brother next to you in that yard, you feel like the king of the yard because someone greater is with you. Graham Cook said this, worship is important. Being at rest and peace in our relationship with God is absolutely vital. When we do not dwell in rest and peace, we find ourselves uh, reacting to circumstances. Paul says, I worship God Believing everything laid down. Worship is declaring truth of who God is and who we are. You know, we even sang that. I just really want to honor James this morning and the team just for, they, they really sensitive and just listening to what God wants, what to share, what to, what to lead us in worship this morning. And those songs just set this up so well. If God is for us, who could be against us? You know, um, what can stand against us? In Jude, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless. 
God doesn't only require, God doesn't just require us to be blameless. He actually enables us and helps us to do it. He is able to present you blameless. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. There's worship. God made us alive through Christ, it says in Ephesians. Raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, worship gives us a heavenly perspective. It gives us perspective above our circumstances. There's, you can make a note of this, but in Revelations chapter 11, it talks about the things that are going to happen at the end of the age when Christ comes back and we are taken up with him and all those. That's a whole separate preach. But there's a great picture here if you think about worship this way. It says in Revelations eleven twelve, Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. You see, look at this picture. Is that Jesus, God's saying, when you worship, you're in, in, you're in Christ, and you're being lifted up with him above your circumstances, and all your enemies can do is watch. When you're worshiping, all your enemies can do is watch. But if he can get you to just simply look at yourself, then that's where the battle continues. So Paul's first reason for a cheerful defense is worship. Next he says, having a hope in God that there'll be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now the main part of this commotion that Paul was in, he actually was amongst this crowd as it said in the introduction there. And he said, he realized that there was different views in the crowd. And he says, it's because of the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm actually here on trial. And he knew that there was differing views of whether they believed in that or not. What is the resurrection of the dead? I just want to give that very briefly. It's not some zombie apocalyptic thing that's happening, but it's simply the central theme and message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As Christians, we believe that he he was crucified on the cross. He died and was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And Christ's death and resurrection made a way for us to have eternal life. Talked about the way. He said in John 3.16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's those great American football posters that end up John 3.16. The Bible tells us that there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. There's a resulting hope of resurrection and eternal life for every Christian. But for those who reject Christ, there will be eternal separation from God in hell. And we don't talk about that very much. But the important thing is to know is that the Bible says that the Lord would have none to perish but have eternal life. And that's why we love talking about Jesus. Because we don't want anybody to be, to be separated from God or separate. We want people to know Christ. But there is this hope that he had. It's a future hope that living now we have a future hope that whatever is now going on, we have this future hope that we're going to be one day eternally with Christ because he rose himself. So first of all, there was a future hope, an anticipation, an expectation, and a confidence. So verses talk about that we're waiting for a a blessed hope. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. But he says that his hope is in God. 
That's hoping in someone rather than a hope for something. Because we can hope and say, I hope things get better. I hope my lottery numbers come through this week. Those are things that we're hoping for. But he says, I'm hoping in someone. And that is Christ. So that you who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise. There's hope and worship. We know Abraham, Old Testament Bible story. God says, you're going to have lots of kids. And lots of kids didn't come. He kept saying, you're going to have lots of kids. And lots of kids didn't come. And it says, Abraham, in hope, believed against hope. Hope is my view of God against the hopeless view of my world around me. Christ is our hope when everything else is hopeless. Bible encourages us that Christ is our hope. Romans 8, there's a series of questions that the answers are consistent. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's what we're talking about this morning. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Knowing all these things, through him, through Christ, where nothing can separate us from his love. Romans 5 says, through him, we've obtained access into this grace. If you're not sure of what that grace really looks like, I want to just so highly recommend TripAdvisor five-star recommendation for you to check out Terry Virgo. You know, sometimes you go to TripAdvisor and you see those testimonies that say, I took someone's recommendation. I wasn't going to, but I took that recommendation and man, I'm glad I did. Well, this is one of those TripAdvisor five-star recommendations. Even if it's not clear yourself as to why you would, just to take that day and sit under that teaching, it will change your world. If you haven't had that teaching for a while, it'll refresh your world. But it says here that we've obtained access by faith and into this grace into which we stand and we rejoice, worship, in hope. I love this verse in Acts 2.28. I appreciate I'm throwing a lot of verses out. If you want to come to me afterwards, I'd be glad to give you my notes if, that, if that's helpful to you. But I'm just making, I'm painting a picture here. Peter says this. Acts 2.26 Therefore did my heart rejoice, worship. My flesh shall rest in hope. My heart worships. My body rests in hope. Those are two great defenses that Paul had. And the great thing is that hoping in God produces more hope. He says, may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound. Christ in us is hope. It also says it's a living hope. One last scripture about hope. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5, that having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. When we're hoping in God, 
hope guards our mind like a helmet. When we're hoping and hoping for things to change, our minds go crazy. When we're hoping in the God who can help us from those things, our minds are set on Him. And lastly, verse 16, I worship God, I hope in God. It says in verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and man. I kind of noticed that he's sort of saying, worship is about him. Hope is in him. But my conscience, I keep. There's, there's a part that I, I play in this. It's a moral awareness without offense. It's a clear capacity to know right from wrong. It's a persisting notion that your heart is right. Living in Alberta, it's in Canada, just below us is a state of Montana in America. And those of us from Alberta when we lived there, when I lived there, there are other people still live there, is the, that when you go into Montana, there was a time when there really wasn't a speed limit. And so you could speed as much as you wanted unless you sped too much. And then they came down to, they said, well, this is just crazy. We need to put some speed limit. I think it's, it's whatever is equivalent now, like um, probably 80, 80, 80 uh, miles an hour is the speed limit currently right now. But w- being in Canada and you go into America, if you get a speeding ticket, they give you a piece of paper. And if you go back to Canada and not pay it, they stay outstanding. But you can ignore them if you wanted to. People have ignored them, let me say that. So you, you end up, I actually have some friends, I actually have some, some, some uh, ministers or some people that said, yeah, I've got a couple of speeding tickets that I haven't sorted yet. And offenses and a clear conscience are like that. Is that we can't ignore an offense, an offense believing it'll go away. Ignoring your conscience doesn't clear it. It needs to be dealt with. Interestingly, in this story, he says, and I set to keep a clear conscience before God and men. I just want to tell you the story. You don't need to turn there. But a little bit later in Acts 24, there's a few verses right at the very end. And it says this, that Paul is in prison. So just to keep him safe, but also to figure out what they're going to do with him, is he's in prison. And it says that Felix, the governor, and his wife regularly visit him and talk to him about different things, talk, things of God. There's, they were a bit of an understanding of the way, of, you know, being a Christian, but they're just curious and asking questions. And so it said that they regularly visited him back and forward. And it says this, that in talking about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix became alarmed and he says, I'll, I'll, I'll call you later when I, when I need to talk to you. At the same time, it says, this is Felix hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he went to him often. This little moment where Felix just kept coming, hoping for a bribe from Paul. And it said he kept coming often. And then it says, after two years, Felix was replaced. So this tells us that Paul faced a challenge to his conscience and to being right before God and men daily, regularly, constantly in his life. Keeping a clear conscience is a daily thing 
consistent thing, keeping short accounts with God and others. Okay, so let's land this now. So what, how do we apply this in our own lives today? How can these words that Paul shared help us? I believe that these three reasons that Paul gave us for his cheerful defense can help us today as we face similar things. When you're struggling with labels that challenge who you are and challenge your identity, worship takes our eyes off ourself and focuses them on God. Interesting how, how that a label, the opposite is worship because we're fixing our eyes on Him. Who is my life and heart serving is the question we can ask. Do you know that God is near you? What is one thing you, I can do this week to focus and refocus my worship? Are you declaring the truth of who God is and who we are? When things just seem to all be stirred up, ask yourself, am I resting in hope? Am I hoping in Christ or am I hoping for something to happen? Maybe you're here and your life feels hopeless. Maybe you've let go of hope for a while. Or you've never found that hope we're talking about in Christ. I said earlier, there was the verse that says, May the God of all, all hope fill you with joy and peace. I really felt as I was doing this that I wanted just to encourage everyone here, whether you think I'm a believer or whether you think I'm just here, or whether somebody invited you and you just came along or whether you took a wrong term going to the dump. This morning, I really believe that God wants to encourage you just to simply take him at his word and say, God of hope, will you fill me with joy and peace in my believing this morning? That you'll give me a hope. I really just want to put that out there, just even in your own quiet time and space. It's kind of like that question, God, if you're really real, God of hope, fill me with joy and peace, whatever that looks like in my world. When the accuser keeps bringing things up, ask yourself, is my conscience clear? Are there any outstanding speeding tickets that you haven't properly dealt with before God? Are there any fences that you're carrying towards another that need to be cleared as much as you can in yourself. I want to leave us with one final concluding verse that's so encouraging. Your question might be, Mike, what if I've done everything I can, but my heart still condemns me? I still have a guilty conscience. Look at the screen here, Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ with whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve, that's the same word worship that in that first one, to serve the living God. You see, what Paul really, really understood was that he had no defense before his accusers except Christ. It's so easy to see when there's something that seems so clear yet so challenging in the Bible that we read this morning that maybe requires a little bit of something of us to conclude that it's not for us or it's too much effort. But if you come to that conclusion this morning 
then you also must accept that you place yourself in a position of continuing to be powerless. But what if we began to understand the cheerful defense that Paul had, despite every opportunity he had to have regret and accusations from his past, and we worship Jesus and serve him wholeheartedly, having a living hope of what Christ had done on the cross in his resurrection. And what if we make every effort to keep our conscience clear from offense? We could become immune to whatever accusations are thrown at us because we know that no defense we have except Christ. He is the one we worship. He is our hope. He enables us to have and keep a clear conscience. Our defense is wrapped up in Christ. 